Hello, welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky, Halloween 2021 edition. Honestly, thinking back on it, I'm pretty sure I started this podcast August of last year, so in the middle of me trying to essentially find a formula and go through and throw out a couple of ideas that I actually wanted to talk about, I guess I did miss Halloween of last year, but to be fair, considering everything that went through in 2020, there wasn't really much celebration or much merriment or horrors to be had um, outside of the majority of quarantine that we were all unfortunately had to experience throughout the entirety of October of last year. But to be fair, this is honestly going to be the first time in a while that I'm actually going to be able to go out and celebrate a bit of it and at least converse with a few people and have a to have a couple of good scares and candy along with the rest of it. So at least I'll be able to go through, since I had a couple of ideas to go through and try and figure out what essentially I wanted to do for kind of a scary theme for this episode, considering that, well... Like I said before, I didn't necessarily have a good theme set up for last year, but now, going through a handful of them, there was definitely a show in particular that I've been wanting to talk about for the last couple of weeks, considering my relationship with it, how it's built over the course of the years, and how it probably has unfortunately ended as of last season's uh, outing. So I guess I'll get to that pretty soon, but first I guess... Over the past couple of days, there were just a handful of pieces that ended up finally coming out and interested me, considering that one of the major titles on Shonen Jump Plus, which is Spy Family, is actually going to be getting an animated adaptation coming out next year, which... To be fair to readers of the actual source material, this is absolutely no surprise considering the quality of the series in particular, as well as how popular it's been over the last several months, or at least it's probably been over a year now for its publication online. And it's been honestly doing a really good job, and it's a really good mix of wholesome fun, surprisingly good and well-rounded action, as well as a great family dynamic that is brought in from the found family trope to see all these characters come together to create a surprisingly well-versed and really wholesome family unit. Considering that at least a quick summary of this is that Spy Twilight is the best of what he does when it comes to going undercover on dangerous missions in the name of a better world, but when he receives the ultimate impossible assignment, which is, of course, to just get married and have a kid, He's probably going to be in over his head, and not one to depend on others. He has his work cut out for him, procuring both a wife and a child for his mission to infiltrate an elite private school when he doesn't even know the wife he's chosen to be is actually an assassin, and the child that he has adopted is a telepath. So I've been definitely been reading this for a while. I It was definitely a matter of time before this ended up finally getting an anime adaptation, and it seems that we're going to be getting that out for this year, so if there's going to be any recommendations coming out of this, honestly, if you're interested, the Shonen Jump Plus app has done a really good job in keeping everybody up to date with good translations and a good catalog of shows, because not only can you read the classic Shonen Jump stuff that comes out every week, it's also got exclusive stuff like like Kaiju Number 8 and previously Chainsaw Man, which of course everybody is looking to finally see its adaptation come to fruition next year, but I guess we'll just have to wait a little longer to see all those come out in time. And then for fans of Wodakoi, they finally ended up bringing out a prequel OVA series. I think it's three episodes long and it's about an hour or so where it focuses on Koyanagi and Kabakura when they were back in high school and kind of how their relationship ended up blossoming in the midst of uh, their respective sports periods. And so as the two grow closer, they forge an everlasting bond, which of course leads to them being in a relationship by the time the television series rolls around. And haven't checked on it yet, although I did read the specific manga chapters that it was adapting when it was coming out. And honestly, it's more Wodakoi. 
I would honestly recommend Motokoi to anybody who's looking for not necessarily a mature and adult-oriented romance. It's definitely focusing more on a workplace romance where there are still childlike um, impulses and hobbies that revolve around all four of the main characters, considering that they're all video, they're all otaku to some sense, where some are cosplay, some are manga, some are anime, some are video games. Everybody kind of has their own, like, unique shtick that they bring into it. But honestly, the chemistry between the main four characters that they actually be able to uh, bring together and bounce off of one another each episode is incredibly fun and enjoyable to watch. So if you're looking for, like, a really just fun series to kind of, like, jump around and pass the time, then Wodokoi is definitely one that I would recommend considering that even though it is more slice of life, the romance aspects that they do weave into the story is more than enough of a reason for you to give it a shot. So now with all of those out of the way, the series that, of course, just reading the title of the episode will give you a major hint on the series that I'm planning on talking about at length today, is going to be at least fitting for the Halloween atmosphere, considering that this is probably one of my favorite horror shows in anime, considering that horror and anime don't necessarily mix too well, considering that the majority of the aesthetic and the presentation that is brought through a lot of these series, it's hard to do just body horror, it's hard to do, like, jump scares, it's really hard to kind of, like, bring a style that could be so utilized inside of a series where it wouldn't necessarily be a burden on any of the animators undertaking the project, considering that there's only so much a very detailed and scary series can bring to the table without using the majority of its resources and actually being able to get the product out the door, which is always an issue, especially when it comes to anime productions. And to be fair, Higurashi is no exception, considering that it was done by Studio Dean starting back in 2006, it's 51 episodes, I believe. And it was a one of the major notable series that came out of the 2000s, considering that it was one of the only quote-unquote shows that did horror right. I guess, considering Dean's style, they do a lot of squash and stretch, kind of like a lot of Western styles and animations there, which does make a couple of the enigmatic torture and horror scenes seem a little janky, but the majority of the time when they really want to lean into the horror, when they really want to lean into the gruesome realities of the situations that the characters have to go through inside of the series, they do definitely shine, especially with a lot of the ambiance and the atmosphere that they're able to bring throughout the majority of the first season. It's They do an exceptional job in comparison to a lot of its contemporaries that just focused on just horror for the sake of horror and then just body horror and tra uh, traumatization and torture just so they can get sort of a guttural reaction out of the audience. But of course, if you do it too often and you do it too frequently, then you kind of just run the risk and run the gambit of just being, okay, so we've already done this torture so many times before, then why exactly... Are we still expecting to get a reaction out of the audience when they're just so numb to it at this point? And so at least Higurashi's original series definitely does a good job at stretching those moments few and far between so that you can actually have time to breathe and readjust to the new situations being brought to you so that when it actually does start to happen, you're dragged, unfortunately, down into the dirt and just being forced to drag yourself through the majority of these conflicts that happen in between the characters and the unfortunate happenings and the results between the rest of them. So 
At least for today, I'm going to be talking about the original Higurashi series. I'm going to just kind of skip the OVAs that happened in between the few series in tandem and just kind of leave those by the wayside because they're not necessarily important, and then focus later on the remake-slash-sequel series that ended up starting uh, in 2019. Or 2020, sorry. So if there is any recommendation that I can say before spoiling essentially the entirety of this series, which I will definitely go at length at more times than others, I would still give this a recommendation. It's, without spoiling too much, if you can go through the first two arcs of this series, if you can go through the first eight or so episodes and still be engaged by the rest of it and you're still curious to see what happens next, then by all means, go for it and continue to watch. Um, but in hindsight, if, you, <laughs> if you're really interested and you really want to get the full experience, I would recommend not to. I will go in great detail about both Go and Sotsu at the end of this, which is the 2020 and 2021 adaptation of a, a different part of the story. I'm not going to recommend that. I am going to recommend the original, the first 49 episodes of Higurashi and Higurashi Kai, but I will get to uh, whatever the hell happened in the previous one. So that bear in mind, there is your warning. Okay, then let's get to it. So... My relationship with Higurashi, I didn't watch it back when it was at its peak or when it was getting recommended to so many other people, regardless through, because a lot of the faces were being memed for sure, even when I was getting into it, because especially with Dean's squash and stretch, if you freeze frame on a really, on a lot of the in-betweens, which are not the keyframes, but it's really easy, especially with any anime today, if you like freeze frame on a screenshot, the majority of the time, you are not going to find a very flattering look at how the, that one specific frame was being drawn. And so, even before I ended up watching this, it was, I definitely seen like a lot of clips and a lot of like screenshots being thrown around where it's like, this is the scariest anime of two the thousands. And it's like, okay, just calm the fuck down. Although I do remember not only seeing that, but also for some reason, it's like, oh, so, in terms of, like, the top 10 or top 5 gruesome death compilations on YouTube, it's like, oh, Higurashi was on there quite a bit. So I definitely knew what I was getting into, like, leading into the series, but I didn't end up jumping into it until, I think, 2013 is when I finally started uh, to give it a watch. And it was a little... Yeah, it was a little off. It was definitely dragged out, especially for the first couple of times, because you go through the first season and a handful of episodes in the second season and it's just resets so in this case it's time loops is the mechanic that they use for the majority of this series and you don't really know who or why this is revolving around but you essentially believe that okay keichi is the one He's the odd one out. He's the one heading into Hinamizawa, which is the small rural town inside of Japan, and he's being transferred there, considering that his parents were able to get a decent job around the area, and they ended up getting a cheap place. And so Keichi ends up being transferred, but he ends up uh, meeting a handful of people inside of his classroom for the school that they're going through, which is also kind of interesting, considering that how small this town really is they basically have one major school and that school covers 
anywhere from kindergarten students to kids that are in high school. And I believe that Keiichi is either like late middle school or early high school, one of the two. But regardless, we end up seeing him go through having these horrible flashbacks, the fact that he's evidently at some point he's going to kill two people who we point out at the partway through the first episode where it's just, okay, this is kind of concerning. But not only that is that he's getting introduced to a handful of the girls that we're going to be following, which is also kind of odd considering that he's the only main guy and every other person in his group is is a girl to a varying degree with a varying relationship. So in this case, we have the common girl, Reyna, who's really into cute things, and she like loves all of her students equally, and everybody's going around except for some reason, especially pointed out in the first arc in particular. She is very paranoid and she is very disturbing and to the point you are incredibly anxious around her considering that she's always trying to follow Keiichi for some reason or another and as the episodes go on in the first arc you end up seeing more and more reasons why she would be more concerned about Keiichi being like moved around by the police and trying to figure out the specific string of murders that have been happening every year at this town towards the festival. And she ends up really getting on his case about it. And she is an incredibly dangerous force. And not only dangerous, but scary in the meantime, throughout the majority of this first arc. And for the other characters that we end up meeting, we get the younger green-haired twin Mion and her older uh, twin Shion, as well as... Sadoko, who's this young, like, blonde-haired elementary school kid who's a master trap and trickster, where she really gets off and, like, has a lot of fun, like, tricking and teasing the majority of the people inside of her class. And then the very ambiguous, weird, and off-putting, just long, blue-haired girl, Reina, who is about Sadoko's age, or Sadoko's age, sorry, but knows more than she leads on, and so she feels like it's something going on inside of this town, and she has some knowledge of it to a degree. But at least throughout the majority of the first arc, in the first four episodes, there's a lot of cases where Keiichi is being antagonized by the majority of the people around him, he gets more paranoid, more, more so to the point that he ends up killing both Reina and Mion, by the end of the episode, and out of nowhere, he essentially goes through, kills both of them, claws at his neck, finds a syringe, and tries to give it to uh, Oishi, who is one of the detectives on the case of the murders revolving around Hinamizawa, as well as the Cotton Drifting Festival that happens every year, considering that every year, there is always one person, at least, that dies during this festival. And so you don't know if they're being spirited away, you don't know if it's just a murder being covered up, or if you don't know if there's something related to the town itself, considering that they are not extremely kind to outsiders who end up coming into their village, as pointed out through multiple times. But we end up getting all of these setups, the dynamic between Keiichi and the rest of the village, essentially the intro to the majority of the characters that we're going to be seeing out throughout the rest of the series. There, there's always a murder mystery. Everybody inside of Hina Mizawa essentially is in on it to a degree, and you don't necessarily know what's going to happen next, but everybody is either a threat or, in this case, being threatened by something. And then, of course, at the end of episode four, 
our main, our supposed main character, Keichi, just dies. He scratches his throat to bits and dies of blood loss and is just sitting in the middle of a telephone booth just by the side of the road. And the police go and sweep up everything inside of his room and cover up all the murders and all the naysay that happens inside of this. And then we get to episode five and everything else has been reset. And so this was definitely like one of the major selling points if it hadn't been, you know, spoiled to anybody before. It's just kind of like, no, this never happens in tandem and it's never an overarching story. No, it's a loop. But in the first season in particular, you get a different perspective with a different character and a different choice that revolves around a different loop, giving you different pieces of information throughout the town of Hinamizawa in terms of the traditional head families, the relationship between Oishi and the detectives, and the one person that ended up trying to figure out what the cause of the murders were who ends up getting murdered in their stead which is why the detective and the police always have a shoddy and a really bad relationship with the monozaki family who is um the family that mion and chion are a part of the curse of oyashiro sama who is the one that apparently orchestrates all of the deaths that happen around this town and around the people that end up going through it and so it's really cool that you get all these bits and pieces of the mystery and why it's all like causing to a head but then every single reset, you get a different timeline with a different perspective and a different character of the group that Keiichi befriended in the first loop that everybody else has to survive around. Where in the first arc, we ended up getting Keiichi and his standing and basically why he came to Hinamizawa. In the second arc, you end up getting Neon and how she is essentially going to be the next head of the family and how that kind of relates around it and how she has to keep everything under control even at such a young age and how that kind of trauma and tragedy and just chaos as well as the stress that that puts on her causes her to do the things that she does. And then leading into still possibly the worst um, just, just like my least favorite arc of every piece of Higarashi content from here on up to the remake and remaster is just, um, the arc revolving around Sadako, considering that she's, like, it's a important arc for different reasons and for different people, considering that it's definitely relating around Sadako's family situation and how... She only had her brother to rely on because her parents died young, and then her aunt and her uncle ended up taking care of them, but they treated them like shit and only used them for, like, subsidies of money, and that caused the stress to be overwhelming to Sadako's older brother, uh, who is it, right, Sadoshi, and how he ends up just leaving after be possibly being the murder suspect in his aunt's quote-unquote suicide, but it's definitely, like, alluded to that he was the one that ended up killing her in the first place after all of the abuse. Um, considering that it's a lot of politics and it's a lot of just dilly-dallying and they actually, no, sorry, in, in the first arc, it's, it's like, it's just been so many, like, times, as you will, as, as you will know, there have been so many loops and so many times where we've had to go over the story, where at least the first time it comes to Saruko Keichi is the one that ends up just straight up killing his uncle and her uncle. And so he's the one that has to help get rid of the body. But unfortunately, throughout the rest of that, he he's the only one that ends up um, surviving by the end of this. Which is definitely interesting considering that it's just timelines that are broken off where some people are left alive and some people are left dead. But the ultimate uh, resolution 
at the end of all these is that this is a horrible end. There, This is a tragedy that still in the first season feels like there's nothing you could have done about it. There is no possible way for anybody to have intervened or changed the course of this kind of destiny or this kind of timeline. And it does get repetitive and ultimately samey where it's like, okay, so this is torture porn. We're essentially just going through loop by loop. These people are going to die, then these people are going to die, then these people are going to die again and again and again and again and again, and there's nothing that we can do to stop it, which is a turnoff to most, and it's understandable, but it does get you into that same sort of feeling where we ultimately, after losing the arc with Keichi, we then lose the arc with Mion, we then lose the arc with Sadako, we then lose the arc with Shion, and then we finally lose the arc with Reina. And so, no matter what Keichi and the rest of the friend group decides to do, they almost all or only one survive in the end, while the rest essentially have to deal with the consequences of everybody's actions and the paranoia and the distrust and the lack of communication between the rest of them, as well as the added variant of what people call the curse of Hinamizawa, or no, Oyashiro's curse, which is always this variable that sends somebody inside the group to madness and ultimately leads to the destruction of the unity between the group and nearly everybody dies at the end of it. And so we finally end up at the end of the first season getting Reina's arc and showing kind of, all right, this was her problem. She was only, her parents were divorced after the issue that she had with one of her previous schools where she went on a rampage. Her dad was the only one that ended up coming through and helping her, but even then, the money that he's spending between the rest of them goes to a cabaret club, to another woman that he's tr essentially being caught between, um, I think it's a gopher game or something, where essentially either prostitutes, call girls, escorts, or in Japan's case, just extra people that you need to talk to that sell their time, just continuously use you as a sink for money and just completely drag you into it. So much to the point where the relationship between Reina's dad and this woman gets to the point where she is with his child and Rika just ignores all of that and ends up killing her. And so she officially hits rock bottom. She ends up almost killing everybody inside of the school that she attends, but at least at that point in time, Keiichi is able to stop her. So the first quote-unquote good-ish end that we end up getting still results in the death of somebody by Reina's hands, but then we still are able to get everybody inside of our main group of people alive and well, and they reconcile, and it's nice. It's just that Takano and Tomitake, who are two reporters and at the beginning, they're essential reporters trying to figure out what the curse of Hinamizawa represents and why it happens every year, they still end up dying in the end. And so Reina just ominously says that she will play with this result during her endless June. And so in that case, we finally end up getting like a new perspective and a new person that is going through and looking about the series. And so now we finally get to pick out Rika, who the majority of the time is a part of almost every gruesome end, um, tragically for her, considering that she's the one that's taking the majority of the punishment. We finally start getting her perspective. And so we start following her, and now knowing that there are many points where she is the one that is able to figure out 
minute changes between the different loops that end up happening and going through and trying to figure out and trying to tell people, okay, this is how you, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die at this point, but you need to save this person. And so it already seems like she's resigned to the fact that there's nothing I can do. These loops will continue forever and I'm going to die at some point, but at least I'm hoping that you can be happy in the end because there is no possibility that I ever will be. And so we end up getting three arcs in the final season between 24 episodes, where at the end of the first arc, we get the ultimate um, bad end, which is related to one of the bad ends that was related to Sadako in the first season, where there is a horrific gas attack that kills everybody in Hinamizawa, and even though Satoko survives it with knowledge and a cryptic message that Rika gave to her before she ended up getting killed at the hands of an unknown suspect, she ends up getting killed herself inside of her own hospital bed. And so the first time we see Rika's opportunity being taken hold of the reins, she ends up getting an eight episode arc where she basically starts pushing people in directions that will avoid tragedy, that will avoid the miscommunication, that will avoid people thinking of the worst case scenario, especially with the majority of the times that we've seen these play out. It's like, okay, all I need to do is these one or two small actions and the, a majority of the crises are averted. And so we finally end up getting to the end of her arc where we realize that one of the major puppeteers behind the majority of the accidents and the tragedies that happened in Minazawa is Takano, where the majority of the arcs she was killed off in the beginning, or apparently killed off in the beginning, and for the rest of it she's basically working as a nurse at one of the clinics inside of this town, which is evidently a research facility for revolving around the parasites that end up causing the symptoms of Oyashiro-sama's curse, which sends people into their berserk, very benign states. But it gets to a point where Rika, she tries, honestly, for the first time, to try and push things towards a happier end and actually gets people to join inside of her cause. But at the end of the day, because she didn't know the scale of how much Takano has been able to root herself into this village with the amount of resources at her disposal, she ends up coming close, but everybody ends up dying in the end to Takano's hand. And so we finally end up getting this 11-episode ending part, which culminates all of the knowledge and all of the characters and everything that we've known up until this point, and it's essentially Reina's... sorry... It ends up being Rika's, it ends up being Rika's last ditch effort before she loses all hope, considering that she's been doing these leaps for, um, evidently nearly hundreds of years. And she goes through, and I will admit, I went through and blitzed a lot of the final arc of this just in preparation, considering that I really remember enjoying this last 11 episodes that I was able to go through it at a relatively brisk pace because I was like, oh man, what's going to happen next? Oh man, I can't... <laughs> like, it, it was one of my first series and it was like one of the better endings that I'd seen to a show. And so we finally see these things come together where we reach the apex of some moments and then we reach the points where we might just fall to despair. But at the end of the day, everybody gets to live. Everybody in Hinamizawa is spared. 
and both Hanyu and Rika end up finally being able to see the first day of July, something that Rika has not been able to see in over a hundred years, and at the end of the day, Rika and Hanyu end up being essentially saved, considering that they finally were able to believe in themselves and they were able to avert all the tragedies that laid before them. And I thought it was a good ending. I really appreciated it, I liked the mystery, of course, there was the body horror, which definitely took a bit of getting used to. But at the end of the day, I really did enjoy this series. And so between the rest of it, there were a handful of OVAs, like nine OVAs between, sorry, ten OVAs. One of the OVA, I think the only OVA I ever ended up watching would have been The Outbreak, which was kind of like a, just a like zombie sort of deal where the majority of Hinamizawa is like succumbing to the, to the virus. And so the rest of the crew have to make it out of the quarantining area just to end up living. And it's just like a side story at that point. And we would then not hear anything uh, related to the rest of the series until Higurashi Go. So just for a bit of retrospective, Higurashi, When They Cry, is a visual novel. It was based on a visual novel um, that came out in the early 2000s. And the author of these visual novels has a handful of other projects that they've done with Visual novels that have also got anime adaptations, in particular Umi Neko, Nanaka Koroni. It's 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 just something. So there's Higurashi and Umi Neko, and there has always been some correlation because what uh, Ryukishi is able to do is that he decides to bring in the style as well as the system of witches, which are beings of higher power. And so you believe that Oyashiro, or in this case Hanyu in Higurashi's series, is one of these witches, considering that they are the ones that bestow the power of time loops to the rest of it. And so we don't end up getting another witch injected into the series until the next Higurashi came into play, which was Higurashi Go. But I will admit, I have absolutely no knowledge or just greater understanding of these extra works. It's kind of like a less convoluted version of the Nasuverse, where Nasuverse made the entire Fate franchise. He also made the Tsukiyomi uh, visual novel series, and he basically just has all these overarching stories and different ones that all take place in the same universe, but also are different universes related to different characters, but all these characters have the same class, uh, and there's still a handful of classes <laughs> except when there are special classes and there are prelogs and prologues and this entire bit, and it definitely seems like Higurashi and Umineko is are just smaller pieces of that greater narrative, but I have no interest in essentially jumping into the rest of it. The only piece is that there are witches that share names and share relationships between these works, and that's basically all you need to know for the rest of it. It's not necessarily going to matter, though, because if I haven't noted, which I definitely have before in previous episodes, I... it's... <laughs> It's it's tough because I don't know what kind of negative connotation I want to give this. It's like, hate is probably the most basic term I can give to Higurashi Go and Higurashi Sotsu. It's where it's like, I don't loathe it, I don't despise it, it's just one of my least favorite series that I ended up having to watch all the way through, which in this case was 39 episodes of... So let, let's just be that. Higurashi's total experience, if you want to just go by the main storyline, is 90 episodes. You only have to watch the first 51, but don't watch these fucking two series. 
Just, just please fucking don't. It is not worth anybody's time to go through just any of what they decided to do for this. So, the reason why I ended up, like, bringing Umineko and the greater quote-unquote expanded universe stuff was that when I was halfway, more than halfway through, about, like, 24 episodes in, and the whole basis around this new, what we thought was a remake, but in this case is actually a sequel, but it's not considering that we don't end up getting the ending of the original series where Hanyu, who is an apparition of one of the witches, who was given corporeal form inside of, well, not corporeal, a physical form inside of the last arc of Higurashi, she gets to live with Sadako and Rika at the end of the day, and they all get to live happier considering that all the organizations are gone, nobody else is going to have to die suddenly, and nothing's out of their control. And so now, Hanyu doesn't have a physical form inside of this world. In fact, Sadoko becomes a witch. And Sadoko is the main antagonist for the rest of this series, but you don't know that. You don't know that until episode 17. So it was just mind-boggling to me because it was just kind of like, okay, after this reveal that Sadoko is has the same power as Rika, she's able to manipulate the time loops and go back to a specific point with a greater degree of control because the witch that she ends up coming into contact with ends up giving her a greater power, it seems. But at the end of the day, I was like, okay, so you're telling me that the whole genesis behind this was to just do a retelling. Because let me just be clear. They go through the same arcs as the original series, which is why we were thinking... Oh, so this is a remake? Sequel? We don't really know because they retold the first arc of the original series where we also get half of that arc leading into the second season. So technically, this is the third time somebody who has watched Higurashi would have been able to go through. And so one of the reasons why we were like, okay, well then, maybe this is a thing for new people to get into the series. And so it's a, you know, a remake so that they'll be able to go through and be, and tell people to go back and rewatch the series, considering that there are many pieces of information, in, like in particular, Sadoko's brother, Sadoshi, who is just asleep in his bed, in his comatose state, considering that that's how he was left for the majority of this series. And it's like, they're saying, oh, uh, well, this is L7 and R7, and here's the syringe, and here's this boy that we're essentially testing stuff on. But it never tells you that. And all of this, like, comes up in the first 10 episodes of the, uh, of this quote-unquote new season. And so we were, like, trying to figure out, okay, so is it a remake? Well, it's not a remake because now they're basically going through and releasing the information about the syringe and the parasites and the essential disease way too quickly for anybody to have any idea what's going on if this is their first time watching it. But then if it's a retelling or a different sequel to people who have seen the original Higurashi, then why are we getting this arc for the third time in a row like there are so few differences in the first 16 episodes of this series that like you you it's so like, like it's aggravating considering that it's if it's a remake tell if it's a remake if it's a sequel tell if it's a sequel and i know that they wanted to be pedantic about it because they succeeded 
in the sense that, oh, well, if we keep it ambiguous, then that means we'll get the people who are coming into this for the first time, and we'll also get the people who ended up re, uh, who ended up watching the series way back when. And it's like, okay, congratulations. Go fuck yourself, though, considering that everything revolving around this is alienating everybody that you're trying to get into this series. So it's like, okay, we're going to be getting new people in the series. Okay, who's that boy? Uh, who's that, what's that drug? What are the relationships between these characters that apparently we need to know about? And why are we jumping into the, uh, like, politics thing? Oh my god. Like, the whole child services thing, which was, which is where I started to get angry. Because it's just, at least for the first arc, which almost completely retells the first arc of the, of the original anime, like, beat by beat. At least for the first two arcs, actually. So that would have been, like, the first eight episodes of this new quote-unquote series follows the two, the first two arcs almost beat for beat. And it's like, okay, great, you gave it a fresh coat of paint. Unfortunately, Dean's, like, this doesn't look too good anyways. Studio Passione doesn't really do a good job, like, selling atmosphere or doing a really good job, like, actually bringing, like, scary pieces into this. It's, it like, it's just the only thing that they did, like that surpassed the original is that they added more blood into the series. Like, holy shit, it's like all of the bodies inside of this, like, new quote-unquote remake slash sequel, it's like every single vein is a jugular around the body, where it's like you get stabbed in the gut, you get a fountain. Stabbed in the neck, you get a fountain. Stabbed in the arm, you get a fountain. Stabbed in the leg, it's like, oh, it'll be like a consistent stream for a good couple of seconds. It's like, what the fuck is going on? And so you're just alienating both sides because once, like, I really started to get concerned, like, leading into, which would have been, like, episode 9, because it's just, okay, now we're going to get the, you know, the bad uncle arc, and we're going to save Sadako again, and honestly, it was one of my favorite, uh, like, parts of the arc in the second season of the original show, considering that it was a really strong emotional moment where Sadako, with her abusive, destructive, and piece-of-shit uncle literally overhearing her every word and every decision is just standing over her and looming over her presence, considering that she is all alone. Her parents are dead, her aunt is gone, her protective brother has been abandoned her for years, and the only person that she has ever had any kind of positive relationship and a positive just outlook and situation and living space that she was able to go through was with Rika. And they were able to live with each other considering that Rika was one of the head or the daughter of one of the head families. So she had a lot of decent times. And so Sadako could cook and they could actually have a lot of fun and actually like grow up as a, as decent people. But then she is forced by her uncle, her really shitty self-destructive uncle to go back and live with her so that he can essentially use her to cook and as well as take in the majority of the money that she ends up getting every. And so it's one moment in particular, one of my favorite moments in the original series where as he is looming over her, as he is listening in on the conversation where they've gotten to the point where the police are hanging outside of the estate. They have gotten through to child services after four grueling episodes of just of cacophony of politics and bullshit. Like the police are waiting outside the door and all they need and all Sadako needs to do is say, yes, help me. Like this is like this person who has been abusing me mentally and physically for the past several years for a child who's like 10, 11 years old. That's just horrifying. But the fact that she was able 
to break out of that influence, to break out from those chains of depravity and despair and that horrible relationship that she had with her uncle and to finally say, yes, please help me. I need help. She ends up getting shoved down by her, you know, dirtbag uncle. But then because she herself was able to point out that, yes, I am in distress and I need help, immediately the police are able to go through and apprehend her uncle. And it's just like, that was a really good scene. And that was a really good payoff for all of the shit that everybody had to go through just in order to get the police to essentially go through and finally take her out of that really shitty uh, living scenario. And then we get... The problem was, in this remake, we get the same four pedantic episodes of, like, interdepartmental and politics bullshit. And then at the very end, instead of getting that payoff again, like with a, you know, a quote-unquote fresh coat of paint, which wouldn't necessarily matter in the first place, at the end of the episode, instead of getting that really prolific moment where Sadako actually ends up asking for help, it's just like, okay... Good job, Keiichi. You did your job. We'll take care of the rest. And then cut to a handful of minutes later where Sadako calls him up on the phone and just says, Oh yeah, no, everything was fine. I said I needed help and the police came in and got my uncle and everything was fine. It's like, that's not how it's supposed to go. That's not cathartic at all. That's not any sort of decent payoff for the monotony and the bullshit that you just dragged people four episodes through. And then at the end of the day, it's just kind of like, okay, well, this is the setup. So it's like, everybody dies. It's like, oh, great. So I'm glad that we went through all that patentic bullshit just to say, oh, yeah, it's all despair and like tragedy in the end. It's like, oh, okay, that would have been fine if we didn't end up going through a season and a half of that for the people that had already gone through that stuff. And I could only imagine anybody jumping into this series would have been like, okay, like, why, why was this so well received? Why did people like notice and want to watch this again? considering that they just went through that arc for the first time, which was annoying. And then for us, it was like, oh shit, no, this is the third time we've had to go through this. Sorry, at least the second time that we've had to go through the child services bit. And so we finally go through the rest of that, and we end up getting weird bits and pieces of just Stockholm Syndrome, because after everything that Rika went through... In the first series, which apparently you don't know, like, this must have been a different... No, it... Ugh, never mind. It wasn't a different timeline. This is this is just an entirely different story, considering that the, like, the ends of the rest of it just don't justify it because the second witch exists and throws a wrench into literally every other timeline. So it's like, it's its own story now at this point. And so I guess Rika still went through all that trial and trauma and hardship, and she still hasn't been paid off for it. And it finally gets to the point where we don't know that Sadako is the second witch yet, but it's, we're, like, they're dragging Rika through the mud where it's like, why do you keep having these nightmares? Why do you think it's a bad thing to try to leave Hinamizawa? Hinamizawa's great. I'm here. Your friends are here. The whole village loves you. I understand that we had those problems with the majority of the damn protests as well as the majority of the village alienating your house but no it's all okay every and and sadoko is like really really in a weird way which started like it was like rumblings that people like started to figure out it's like whoa this is she's getting like way too familiar and like way too like preachy about hinamizawa and so it gets to the point where rika decides to stay it's just that the problem is is that through the majority of the time she ends up getting through 
like a handful of loops, and she has to make a decision, okay, I now have this knowledge that she's like, okay, if you're falling to despair, well then, this knife, or, or this sword will legitimately kill you. Uh, like, cause there is apparently a sword inside Oyashiro's statue that is a sword that will kill time loopers out of fucking nowhere. And it's like, oh great, so this is gonna be a fucking plot device. And so she ends up getting a shard of this sword that she will be able to use to kill herself at some point. But it's like, okay, so there's a bad loop here and a bad loop there. Here's a loop, there's a loop, every there's a bad loop. And it's just kind of like, okay, well, it's really getting bad to the point where she literally just wakes up at the beginning of one of her time loops, and she's already being disemboweled by Sadako. It's like, what the fuck is going on? In which we finally get to the end of episode 17. Rika's like, okay, this bullshit isn't adding up. I'm going to swap one of the props that Sadako ends up, like, trying to trick me with, with a teddy bear. And it's like, okay, how did you know that wasn't a teddy bear? It was supposed to be a, a boxing glove. And it's like, okay, so why did you know that? And it's like... She ends up getting, like, the Watanagashi, like, red, horrifying eyes, and then she pulls a gun out of her pocket. And it's like, okay, so Sadako, for some reason, is the reason why all this bullshit has been going on. Great, because this is, this is enti- something entirely new. This is an entirely different story. Considering that Hanyu does not have a physical form in this series, and that it's just an entirely different route where, okay, we're giving in despair. If you really don't want to deal with this, I will give you a sword that finally ends the life of a time looper instead of having you come back and resetting everything along your life. And it's, so the reason, I'm going to be probably be paraphrasing here, but the major reason why Satoko didn't want Rika to leave the village was because in one of these routes, in this case, uh, Rika wants to go to this, uh, like, high-end high school. She wants to attend this high-end academy, like, on the outskirts of Tokyo. And, basically, she and Saruko study really hard to get in, but Saruko, I hate studying. And she hates studying. Thankfully, this is the first loop. So this is the first loop. We already know throughout the original series and for the rest of it that Sadoko is a really, isn't a bookworm. She hates schoolwork and she definitely like wants to fool around a lot more because schoolwork didn't really help her escape the majority of the trauma that she had back in her own household. So there's that. And so they go to this academy and it's like Rika ends up Going with Sadako, Sadako follows her to the academy considering that she was able to go through and get good enough grades because they both studied really hard together. And so they go to this academy, but Rika ends up, like, ch- uh, breaking, not necessarily breaking off, but she ends up, like, getting a part of the higher clique of the school. And Sadako, because she no longer has Rika's help, because Rika's in this new group trying to find new friends, trying to find, like, other people to communicate with considering that she hasn't had any opportunity in hundreds of years of time loops to try and form new connections and new bonds with just new people, any people, anybody else. And so the original Sadoko just doesn't essentially like get that, of course, which is understandable. Um, and so she ends up going through all this hell and goes through remedial classes and the remedial classes like drive her to madness they end up getting, like, a good, like, positive feedback and a, and a good push from all their friends, like Keiichi and Mion and Shion and Reina, all back from the original. But then by the time she gets back to the Academy, she's like, I can't deal with this bullshit. Considering that at the end of the day, 
once she ends up talking with the rest of them and they have their good, like, fun day and the first time back to Hinomizawa in several months, she ends up meeting a different witch, which is named Yua, or... Yeah, Yua, I think, is the one that she names her in that she's a priestess, but she's got to be a witch as well, considering that she has a very similar getup and similar horns to Hanyu. And so it's like, okay, so there's another witch in this point. Okay. And so Yua ends up giving her the power to use the time loops, but to a higher degree of control and power that Rika does. And so instead of... And so she keeps trying because for some reason... Rika is, like, dead set on trying to become this, to to go to this academy, and and you would think that now that Sadoko has the ability to time loop, like, couldn't you just remember and write down all of the previous answers to all the previous tests that you were doing back at the club, and then you could just, I don't know, like, hang out with Rika in the meantime? And so at the end of the day, basically the rules are if Rika dies before Satoko does, then Rika doesn't retain the memories of the previous loop, but Satoko is able to. And so that is how she's able to go through. So basically we finally get that seven part bit where it's like, okay, so what are Satoko's intentions and what are her reasons for doing so? Okay, so she wants to live out the rest of her life with Rika. Awesome. But she doesn't want to go to St. Lucia's Academy because it doesn't matter it is predetermined that Rika will always want to go to this academy in every single loop that she goes through. Okay, kind of ridiculous, but okay. Um, and that she will always be left behind. Or it's like, is, will she really be left behind if you now know how to time loop? Like, couldn't you just go throughout the rest of this and figure out the knowledge yourself and then be able to incorporate that so you could spend more time with her? It's like, okay, fucking sure, fine. And so she ends up getting... At the end of the first 24 episodes, she's able to use the, use a time loop enough times to access a briefcase that has the Hinamizawa serum, the H173 serum, that is able to induce the symptoms of terminal stages of the Hinamizawa syndrome and disease. Which then brings us to Sotsu, which for the first 11 episodes is going to have us rehash the first three arcs with... Mion with Satoko, with like with Satoko's uncle, and with Keichi. And be the reason why all of these arcs were happening, and the reason why all these random people were like immediately being overtaken by this disease was because Satoko was the one to incorporate and send all of these loops into chaos because she decided to choose who ended up getting infected with each route so that it, she would drive Rika into despair. This person that she loves endearingly, she will drive her to despair to the point where she no longer wants to leave Hinamizawa and they will live in this town forever so she never has to take a single test again excuse me what the fuck like to talk and then to top it all off like the one character which is weird they tried to of all the people in this series to give a second chance and a better outlook to they picked the deadbeat child abuser uncle so sadoko's uncle to be like redeemed to a degree, which is like, okay, of all the characters that you could have picked, it's like, if you're, the, if you're a first-time watcher, I'm surprised you've already gotten to this point, because at this point, you're basically, like, 30 episodes in, so, like, how the fuck did you get this far? But, on top of that, it's like, 
yeah, the the child abusing uncle, that's the one that you want to try to redeem. And it's like, yeah, because it's the only person left in Sadoko's life that could possibly have a positive effect on her for changing for the better and giving her a reason to be like, oh, this time loop shit is not as all it's, that it's cracked up to be. And it's like, oh my fucking God, this is like, why? So it's like episode 34 or 35. So the reason why they wanted to do this was because there was fractures in Sadako's psyche, like trying to form where it's like, no, I don't want to hurt my uncle. He's turning out for the better and I don't want you to stop. And I just want you to stop hurting people. They just, why do you have to do this? And it's like, well, it's inevitable. It's like, fucking what? And so Sadako's red-eyed witch-like self ends up shooting the theoretical you know, regular child Sadako that I guess would have been, like, the original Higurashi Sadako in the face and being like, okay, now she's transitioned into full witch and she literally beats Tepe into, like, the ground with a bat that she's got. And it's like, oh my, it's, because it's, it's like, oh yeah, no, we're using this as a symbolization of the transition to the witch Sadako rather than Higurashi Sadako. And it was just kind of like, it was so ridiculous because, like, by the time the fifth swing of the bat came down where Tepe's already dead, like, if we're talking about blood pinatas, she beats him, like, over, like, over a dozen times, and by the time she's done, the entire fucking room is caked with blood, including herself, and it's like, oh, you really tried to literally beat us over the head with it that this is a new fucking person. It's like, oh, congratulations, good job. And so we basically get, afterwards, we finally get up to the point where, where, and, uh, Asadako ends up, like, killing Rika and then herself, which was what we were, like, brought up to at the middle of, at the middle point of the previous season. So, I'm not gonna waste as much time anymore considering that there is just so many pieces of this that just ended up being completely ridiculous and gentrified and, like, I, it, it was just so much more than a hate watch at this point because I needed to know how this ended. Like, does this new version of Higurashi have a purpose? That was the ultimate question that I wanted to have answered by the end of this series. Did this whole reimagining of this series with Sadoko imbued with witch powers as the new main antagonist, would this lead to, like, an expanded universe of Umineko, of the authors, like, different visual novels? Is this the beginning of a new, like, visual novel multiverse sort of deal? Or is this ultimately just a different perspective with a different timeline using the term witches to essentially, like, bring about a new story to try and, like, push this forward? And so we get the last two episodes... Or in this case, let me just do a quick summary of the last arc, which is the last four episodes, I guess, considering that we basically get Hanyu being tied up to this cross and being forced to watch Rika go through, like, agonizing loop after agonizing loop, where it's just kind of like, okay, it's like five to six minutes of new footage overlapped to, like, an ad- overlapped to the other 15 minutes, which is just retellings of, like, the horrible tragedies that happened in between the rest of this. And so, we get to the point where, near the end of the previous series, that Rika finally heeds the shitty advice of Sadako that she is going to stay 
inside of Hinamizawa, and nothing bad's gonna happen. And nothing bad does happen. A couple of weeks pass, this is actually seeming like it's a relatively decent route, where nobody dies, and everybody turns out happy. Until we get to the point where... Rika has been trying to piece together why all these things keep happening and why the majority of this ends up always resulting in her death. And so she suspects Sadako, so she tries to, in a very simple way, figure out if she knows what the cases of the box are. Because the box is always a boxing glove as the surprise present inside, but in this case she puts a teddy bear. And so she takes out the box, and she points it toward her, and... Satoko ducks, because she expects it to be the boxing glove jumping out to punch her in the face. But then, it's not. And so she removes the box, and it's a teddy bear. And so that is the ultimate payoff into saying, okay, how did you know that that was a regular bear and not a boxing glove? And Satoko's like, fuck this, I'm just going to bring this into... (laughs) Yeah. Fuck this, I'm just going to kill you, and we're just going to bring this out. Because now, somehow, you're able to figure out previous pieces of the loops, even though I still have you die before I do, which is kind of like a little bit of a loop and a paradox, but fuck it, I'm going to kill you anyways, and we're going to see what happens. And so the last two episodes happen, and it is just a punching match between Rika and Saruko above, like, to, between different places and different routes and different areas and just different vistas inside of Hinamizawa also inside of St. Lucia Academy, also inside of the clinic, also inside of Tokyo, and they just go back and forth and back and forth. And at the very end of this, even after, like, all of this punching that happens in the second-to-last episode, the final episode comes into play, and they both put on their Miko garb, and they go Super Saiyan. I am not making this shit up. They imbue the power of the witches and the corporeal entities at each of their disposal and they fly around Hinamizawa punching each other as well as fighting each other with different fragments of the sword that kills time loopers and they're having this big bombastic fucking sword fight in the sky where their hair is being illuminated and just energy is coursing through their veins and being shot out at such ridiculous entities that it you can see it to the degree that it is so much like a fucking Super Saiyan fight. It's fucking ridiculous. And at the end of the day, neither of them kill each other with the loop-ending sword, and they just reconcile because Rika points out the obvious where it's just, you didn't like to study. Yes, I fucking hated studying. Then I'll just keep studying with you. Well, that doesn't matter. Well, I'll make it matter because I, because regardless of all the Stockholm Syndrome, of all the bullshit, of all the relationship and the trials and tribulations that Sadako put Rika through, you're still my friend and I still want you to live a happy life without me. And they make it up and Sadako goes back to Hinamizawa with the rest of the crew and lives with her newly positively infused and, like, better version of her deadbeat, like, child-abusing uncle, and Rika goes out on her own. And so her witch, and then what is essentially, so, which was also, oh my god, I guess, I guess the, because I'm reading off the wiki at this point, and even they pointed out where it's like the last moment of this series is that Sadako's witch persona 
that was the one that won the shootout between her and the regular Saruko just finds this new life boring and returns complete control of her body to her old psyche. And Hanyu ends up watching joyfully from the, from the, the one of the shrines. I'm losing my fucking mind. And everybody is quote unquote happy. Happy is the furthest emotion that I would have felt after concluding this series. Cause after 39 episodes, after literally a year of watching this shit week by week, we are left with something that is ultimately just an unconsequential sequel or retelling and something that helps neither the people who are getting into it for the first time and it helps neither the people that end up coming back to this because they enjoyed the original series. And not even the people that have read every visual novel underneath Ryukushi, nobody's happy here. No, like that same deal with the Promised Neverland second season, where you alienate not only the source readers, you alienate not only the anime-only watchers, you just alienate everybody who is being involved inside of this project because it is ultimately something that diludes and diverts so much from its original story that it is literally only there, there just at the end of the day, to not deserve to exist. There was ultimately no purpose, no reason, and that is the worst outcome out of all of this. There was no reason for this additional series to exist. And the fact that I took it like a sucker, and evidently I am sitting here now being like 39 episodes into that series saying, I can't really give myself any slack, considering that at the end of the day, I thought that this was going to be something to have a greater purpose and to have a reason to exist, because I knew it was going to be a long-running series, I knew that it was going to be giving new pieces of information on it, and ultimately, as an anime-only watcher, I was just fucking slapped in the face, because at the end of the day, it didn't matter. So it's like, from the perspective of an anime-only watcher, I know that there are people who somewhat enjoyed this because there were different... When this was airing, there were different uh, discussion threads. One were anime-only watchers, and the other were people who had read the visual novel and had gone through every bit because they were like, oh, this is this is the ending of this specific road. Oh, this is the, like, oh my god, Sadako's a witch. Oh my god, they name-dropped somebody else from one of the other series that the other author has done. It's like, oh my god, this is actually just going to branch off into something else, isn't it? No. That is all I can say at the end of the matter. No. So at least for a Halloween special, I don't know how much of this I can essentially bring in to the fact that, yes, this was definitely a little difficult to kind of uh, like bring into the fold. A lot of it was rambling. A lot of it was just me trying to figure out if this series was good enough in the first place, which thankfully, rewatching a handful of the previous episodes from the original season, considering that it had been probably eight years now, I'm pretty sure, since I had actually gone back and rewatched any of it. It definitely doesn't live up. The art style definitely doesn't hold up. Um, I still believe that the story leaves enough open for you to actually figure out for yourself what you want to do. And so I guess, like I said before, 
If you're interested in a horror thriller series that is very reminiscent of the 2000s, then I would definitely give Higurashi's first season a go. But like, holy shit, it's just not fucking worth it to jump into this second half. I definitely feel like Tinges and Nostalgia Critic where it was like, I remember it so you don't have to. And hopefully nothing else comes out of this because at least we have the original and that's all we got to do. So I'm hoping that at least for November, I'm pretty sure I've got a handful of things coming up that are going to be uh, more positive pieces. Considering that November is going to be the month where a lot of extra series go through, we're going to be hampering through the half of the fall season, but then also the live-action Cowboy Bebop is going to be making its debut. So it'll be interesting. At least I hope so, to one degree or another, because at this point in time, the worst that the Cowboy Bebop adaptation could be right now is mediocre. Whether it's on one extreme side or the other, at least there's something to talk about, but otherwise, just like this series it would just be worse for it to not have existed in the first place. Mm -hmm.